most people want to help the world. Most people want to eat better, but many of them just can't afford the price premium that's on alternative proteins or plant-based proteins. And I feel like the alternative protein world in general is on a really good track to drive the price down. But we are at that unique advantage right now where scaling up biomass fermentation is not as expensive as other forms of alternative protein production. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to the 83rd episode of the Business for Good podcast. I hope you enjoyed the last episode with biodegradable packaging company Footprint. I was really impressed by how far the company has come in such a short amount of time, both with its innovations and its sales to major food companies from Beyond Meat to ConAgra. So if you didn't listen to it, go back and check out episode 82, since it is certainly an inspirational one. Now, speaking of inspirational, if it is inspiration that you are after, this episode is sure to deliver. Because Ann Palermo and I started talking about a year ago when she had this idea for a company, and wow, has she come a long way in that past year. As you'll hear in this interview, Ann is a former asset manager at Morgan Stanley who decided mid-career that she wanted to start her own chocolate company. After growing her first startup to millions of revenue, this mom of three left the chocolate industry and because she got hooked on the need for animal-free protein, and she pivoted to start a new company focused on saving the oceans. Anne began by growing mycelium, the root-like structure of fungi, just on wet pieces of cardboard in her own kitchen, and to her pleasant surprise, Anne found that she could tune the mycelium into various kinds of whole-muscle seafood mimicry. The result is that aquacultured foods was born. Fast forward to today, and Anne has raised millions of dollars, hired staff, filed provisional patent applications, partnered with a major food company, and more. Anne's vision involves turning the tide on the war that humanity is waging on oceanic animals while still allowing seafood lovers to enjoy their favorite foods, but just made via fermentation rather than fishing. I'll let her tell you the story herself. I now give you Aquacultured Foods CEO, Anne Palermo. Anne, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Hi, Paul. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It is my pleasure. I'm so glad that we are talking officially here because you and I have been talking for more than a year now about your idea. When we first started, you were telling me that you were growing mycelium in your own kitchen. I think you even told me it was like on like, well, are you, are you like growing it on cardboard pieces in your kitchen? Is that right? Is that, is that am I remember that correctly? You have a really good memory. Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm in the very, very, very early stages of what I was doing when I was doing all kinds of different tests. I did start just familiarizing myself with different types of mycelium and it, I was trying to grow it in a way that I thought could potentially scale. And so I was just using some damp cardboard in order to grow mycelium. It was really fun and interesting experience. I had a lot of it in my um, pantry. Got to tell you, the smell was overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Well, at least you had very low CapEx. Um, it, you know, it's a good thing. Out of curiosity, like, where were you getting the spores? Like, how are you even obtaining them? Are you ordering them online or what? Oh, yeah. Well, now we can order things online. Yes. But in the very early stages, I was just using different mushrooms. So what you can do, yeah, is you can grow mycelium yourself on just using the stems of mushroom stems. So in in the very, very, very early stages of what I was doing, that was what I was doing. It was, I feel like it was a good thought exercise. And it was a fun, I guess, bit of my overall story. Things have obviously changed since then. But 
I'm the kind of person that really just enjoys learning how things are made, how they're formed, just what the process is, how by tweaking different um, things such as temperature, humidity, just the type of, at that time, mushrooms we were using, how the overall taste and texture of, a, of an item can really change. So I think that during those times, it really helped to spark my early interest and just ability to see what I was potentially doing and where it could go. Well, before we go there, because I am intensely interested in hearing about that path from how you started uh, growing mushroom stems in your kitchen on wet cardboard to raising millions of dollars and, and getting ready to commercialize products, let's talk about what happened to Ann Palermo before this all happened. So this isn't your first entrepreneurial rodeo, right? I mean, you had a, a pretty illustrious career before. So I know you were an asset manager at Morgan Stanley, and then you started your own company. So after you left the financial world to start your own company, what did you do? What were you starting up and why did you do that? Well, you know, I was very, as you mentioned, I was very heavily into finance at the time and it was great to me. It was a great experience. However, it wasn't really true to my authentic self. I was always very entrepreneurial. I was very interested in the health and wellness side of life in general. And so I went back to school to learn more about food science, culinary innovation, food tech. And that really sparked my interest in next level entrepreneurship. So upon graduation, I started my first company. It was a CPG company in the food and beverage space. I developed some proprietary technology within that company itself on the creation and manufacturing of chocolate. That was a wonderful experience. But again, that wasn't really true to my authentic self with the health and wellness side. What was it called and why did you, you decide chocolate is my new thing? I'm going to go from, from the financial world to doing a chocolate startup. Honestly, part of the reason that I started in the the chocolate side is that I just really enjoyed doing making chocolate candies when I was in. And so I thought, oh, well, this could be a fun experience. And so I was trying to take the really high end and elevated chocolate and bring it to mass market. That was, again, it was a great experience. However, I wasn't really as passionate about chocolate as I was about health and wellness. So I pivoted that to a healthy snack and I developed some more proprietary technology around the use and the process of manufacturing a soft-centered, high-protein candy that did not use any protein isolates whatsoever. So the nutritional profile on that was very similar to a Kind Bar, but the taste of it was more similar to like an elevated Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. It was a really exciting product. I grew it to a multi-million dollar run rate within uh, nine or 12 months of the relaunch of that product. But what I'm most proud of with that experience was the fact that I was able to really learn all about different types of alternative proteins and different protein isolates that were out there, how they worked with each other. And so during the product development of that stage or of that product, I started to do more research into the alternative protein industry. And I got very just fascinated about all the capabilities and what's going on with fermentation and was really fascinated about fermentation in general's ability to create high quality proteins that are not, you know, they're not necessarily processed. Our products are not processed. So they are very high in levels of bioavailable nutrition and micronutrients, really high in naturally occurring proteins and fibers. Plus one thing that I'm really passionate about with this product is we were able to attain a 70% hydration level, which is very, very similar to traditional seafood and the hydration level of seafood. 
So the texture is just very, you know, it's very gorgeous and it replicates that of like a sushi or sashimi or just any kind of raw seafood cuts. So what happened to your chocolate company? And so if you're doing millions in revenue, like, did you shut it down? Did you sell it? Like, what was the end of your line with it? So what ended up happening is we rebranded the product and from a packaging that was just, it wasn't great. Gotta admit, our early packaging just (laughs) wasn't great. And then we changed it and overnight quadrupled sales. And we were using a proprietary process again that I um, developed. And we couldn't, and our current manufacturer just wasn't able to keep up with the demand. I was told that we put in a really massive order one day. And I remember it distinctly, it was in August and we put in a a very large order and the new COO just told us, oh, well, we can't, we don't have any production line time until the spring. And so in essence, we had six months of no manufacturing and we ran out of product. And um, it was a story that has been told many times of growing too fast. That was frustrating. I still own all the IP on that. And who knows, maybe one day I'll bring it back because it's just a fantastic product. I presume there, there weren't investors in the company. It was all bootstrapped. Exactly. It was all bootstrapped. And so I've learned a lot from that experience, which is why we rather than, you know, which is why we started fundraising as early as we did now. Um, we didn't even try fundraising with the old one. We had a sell story that was so fantastic. It would have raised money pretty quickly. But I think it was just my interest was more on the alt protein side by then. And I just wanted to create something that I felt had the ability to change the world for the better. And in the alternative protein space and just alternative seafood in general, being such a market white space, I knew I had the ability to change people's lives on a global level. And that is just the excitement, the opportunity to save lives was so much, so much stronger for me than worrying about a past business, I just kind of took that experience and learned a lot from it. And now know, I think any kind of experience, as long as you learn from it, is going to help you in in so many ways that you don't even understand at the time. And I think now having those experiences, I'm in such a better place in order to manage growth. Nice. So I understand why you would want to do something that does more good in the world and that could save lives, as you mentioned. But what was the original motivation? Like, how did you even know about alternative proteins? How did you know that seafood was a white space? Were you reading something? Were you watching something? Did you hear about it from some organization? Like, what was it that initiated that motivation for you, Anne? Well, just being in the food and beverage industry, it was really easy to see what was happening on alternative in the alternative food space, you know, with alternative milks and dairy and and just kind of seeing what was happening there and then learning why. Why is this happening? Why is there so much need? Why is it growing so quickly? And then you learn about 2 billion people are going to be born on Earth in 30 years. That is amazing. You know, our global population is approaching 10 billion people. Current methods of protein production as far as animal husbandry, as far as agriculture, as far as aquaculture, just can't sustain that kind of demand on our food system. There has to be a better way. And I've always been really, really interested in giving back. And I've always been wanting to, you know, just find a way to make the world a better place. And so I was just, during my reading, as I was doing a lot of product development for that snack company, I was just always drawn towards alt protein. I was just really drawn towards the cause and the problems that are out there. And once, you know, and as I started to do more and more of just, my own product development. And I started to realize that, hey, 
I could have an impactful difference. I can make a true, meaningful change. I can help solve all the problems that are going on with the ocean. I can help feed, you know, feed people globally with the nutritional product. Why not? Why wouldn't I? And so I jumped in with both feet. Very cool. Well, let's talk about how you jumped in then. And because most of the time when people think about fermentation, they're thinking about like steel tanks and tubes, basically. They're thinking about bioreactors or maybe they're thinking about beer breweries. That's not the kind of fermentation that you were doing, though, to my knowledge. You are not using bioreactors. You're, you're doing something else. So what is it? I know you started out uh, very rudimentary with these wet pieces of cardboard, but what is the type of fermentation that you're doing if it isn't uh, submerging some type of uh, microorganism into a liquid and creating something inside of a bioreactor? So what we're doing is we are using, um, we're doing biomass fermentation. So we're growing whole sheets of this material, this protein. And we're growing it in whole sheets and using a process called uh, surface adhesion fermentation. So what we're doing is we are right now, and part of our research right now is we're really optimizing our feedstock in order to increase the nutrition, increase and speed up the growth time, really get that texture nailed, feed our microorganisms the best food that it needs in order to create the highest quality product possible. What I love about this type of fermentation is the fact that it is so scalable and has the ability to have multiple facilities for the growth material globally speaking. It's going to really help us to, if we have a, a facility, you know, in a couple places in the US, it'll help us if we have facilities in Asia and Africa, and it'll help to shorten and shorten out that supply chain. So we're not going to have the same kind of issues with getting product and getting protein and getting food to everybody globally, like what was seen during the COVID epidemic and just all the food shortages, but I digress. <laughs> so how we're doing it is we're, we're using stacked trays. And so some of our patents right now, so we have three patents pending, and one of them is specifically around how we're doing that. But yeah, it's a process that is using stacked trays, kind of similar to mushroom farming, only we're using a liquid or a dissolved substrate versus a solid substrate. So it sounds kind of uh, similar to what Nature's Find also in Chicago says that they are doing in, in their own public comments about their process where they're using basically shallow trays with some type of a liquid nutrient media and growing their mycelium in it in stacked trays. So it's interesting that these two companies, both in Chicago, are interested in doing that same technique. And in fact, Anne, you are not the very first Chicago mycelium entrepreneur to come on the show. Um, are you familiar with MycoCycle? I'm not, no. So uh, Joanne Rodriguez came on our show. She's their CEO. And they're basically using mycelium to degrade construction waste. So it's a bioremediation startup. But they're doing some really cool things. Uh, she's based in Chicago too. But for anybody who is interested in learning more about the uses of mycelium for bioremediation and breaking down things that are otherwise perceived as unbreakdownable, then you can go back and listen to the MicroCycle episode. And we will include that in the show notes for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But it sounds like a really interesting and cost-effective way to grow your mycelium. And so uh, I can't wait to try this product. I've had the... Have you had the corn fish sticks? Q-U-O-R-N fish sticks? I'm very familiar with corn. Yes, I have. I've not tasted their fish sticks, though. I have to admit, I do a lot of my grocery shopping right now using delivery services. And the ones that I'm currently using don't have it. But I, yeah, I know I should. Our product developer has had it. So that's good. That's telling. So. <laughs> well, my wife and I love the corn fish sticks. They are phenomenal. 
And I especially like that when you buy the corn products, that there's not plastic in them. It's just basically a cardboard box with the product in there. But you are not doing something like a fish stick, which is basically a ground up product and that's chopped and formed into the shape of a stick. You're doing something that is very different. You're pursuing, instead of creating chopped and formed products, which is nearly all of the alternative meat world today, from fish sticks to chicken nuggets, sausages, hamburgers, meatballs, and so on, you're trying to do whole muscle mimicry, which has been a holy grail that many companies have not been able to crack, even big companies with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And yet you are doing this with far less money than they are. So tell us, what is it that you're doing that is achieving uh, whole muscle mimicry through your mycelial fermentation here? What is it that we're doing? Yeah, like, yeah. So why, why can you crack this problem where others haven't? You know, I think it's probably a lot of it has to do with just looking things very, very differently. You know, this is something that I've, I don't know. That's a, that's a great question. I don't know. I looked at things very differently. I did a lot of testing on different kinds of products. And I think maybe how it came to be is I wasn't, when I initially created the, our version one product, I wasn't setting out to create something specific. I was going out to create an alternative protein of some sort, but I didn't know what shape it was going to be at the time. And so I think just having fluidity and in invention kind of helped. I think initially seeing and growing something really, really small and seeing the opportunity with something that was really small and then just tweaking it and growing it to see how big I can get it. And that's part of the beauty in the, of this product is it's how tunable it is. So we can change our textures and we can change our texture and nutritional profile just by changing things and the composition of our feedstock by changing the humidity and changing the temperature of the of the environment in which we're growing our product and now i mean as as i mentioned you know from where we were when we started with our v1 to where we are now things have really changed we have a lot more science behind it and in fact it's really exciting so we just were named a semifinalist with xprize and I'd love to mention that because it was just such the technological rigors that we were put through is really validating because of all the scientists that read through all of our papers and all of our submission and make sure that everything was just technologically validated by those PhDs. And I just, that's something I like to kind of shout through from the rooftops <laughs> because it's just, yeah, because I don't have a scientific background, but we are bringing on the scientists and you know, we have, we're in the process of bringing on several and just really rounding out our scientific team. We have a great, really great lead scientist right now. We're bringing on a really great microbiologist. And just by, I think, um, just the excitement around the product, we've been really able to attract some very high profile hires. And I'm excited about it because they bring so much. Well, that's very cool. And by way of background for folks who aren't familiar, the XPRIZE is currently doing a $15 million competition to see who can come up with the best animal-free either chicken breast or fish fillet. So these are whole muscle mimicry. So if you think about how hard it is to do, that's why they're offering millions of dollars of prize money to companies if they can do it because nobody's really been able to convincingly do it yet. So there are about 30 different companies that have been uh, named as semifinalists. Congratulations, and on aquaculture being one of them. And it's an exciting competition. And uh, we'll see. There's companies that are doing fermentation, companies doing plant-based, companies doing cultivated meat from animal cells. So it'll be a cool competition to see. But and I want to ask you, so you're talking about getting different textures that can mimic different types of fish species from tuning either, as you say, the temperature or the humidity and so on. Is it all with one strain of fungi? Or are you utilizing numerous species of fungi? Like, 
What is your uh, your toolkit looking like? So right now we are we're experimenting with different types of species or different st- types of microorganisms and see about fermenting them together through co-fermenting them to see how we are able to really tune that that texture and tune that nutrient rich profile. So you you are right in that. Cool. Well, I I don't think I was right. I was just asking since I have no idea. But I want to ask you just I'll just ask you Anne, about the business because you know you are you know somebody you came from the financial world. You decided to do a chocolate startup and you had success and and then also some challenges there. You're sitting there in your kitchen thinking, hey, this is cool. Let me experiment with growing mushroom stems on cardboard. At the same time, you are a mom of three. You have no shortage of tasks and responsibilities in your life. And you're thinking, ah, I am going to start my own company that's going to do alternative seafood from mycelium. What was your next step? Because now you've raised a couple million dollars. So I think for a lot of people like that, there's a lot of people who have ideas, but they don't necessarily execute. They don't go out and raise money and create a company and start hiring people. So that gulf that you bridged is really, I think, where a lot of people who have a cool idea just fail. And so what was it? Like, what are the steps that you took to create the company? How did you start getting in front of investors? What do you think was compelling to them about why they would put millions of dollars into your idea? You know, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I'm a second time founder. And so the experience you get and understanding on business really, really helped accelerate that path. But I think what it comes down to is the fact is I wasn't afraid. I'm not afraid to talk to people. I'm not afraid to ask and close deals. I'm not afraid to ask for introductions. I'm not afraid to just cold reach out to get you know sales partnerships. And I really think that this, that whole process helped to accelerate things. Plus, at the same time, the project that I'm doing really speaks to a lot of people. Alternative seafood, it's new and it's different. There's not a lot out there right now, but the opportunity is really big. And it is attracting... It's attracting industry. It's attracting VC funding. It's attracting scientists, attracting global research. And, you know, it's attracting, you know, there's even deep space competitions now where projects like this is attracting potential grants from NASA. And so it just seems like with a mission that's as powerful as this, people are already really interested. And so something that I think I'm doing well is just executing on that vision and getting the name out there letting people know we exist, talking with people, closing deals and partnerships. And it just kind of starts to snowball from there. But I really think what's important is understanding that no one person can do it all. And so you have to attract a really great team. And you know, my co-founder, Brittany Chibi, is really fantastic. And she's great with the tactical day-to-day, making sure that everything gets done. You know, she's just really been fantastic. And you know, attracting our, our lead scientist, Bob Schultz. He comes from Nugs. He has done so much there, really developed the formulation for the fastest growing alternative chicken nugget company in the US. And just what a fantastic marketing side they have. And we have a really exciting and dedicated team of advisors on business and science side. And just I think everybody coming together is creating something truly special a lot of momentum and we've just been able to execute our vision very successfully thus far and i think that as we enter into the next stage of our business's growth we're going to be able to see that more and more as we start to get more products on the market as we start to do more tests and retail and food service establishments we're excited because 
we're going to be having um, like a taste test trial with a really well-known seafood chain. But what we like about it is it's a very down-home kind of seafood chain where people know seafood. So we're not testing our products in vegan restaurants. We're testing our products with seafood eating consumers on a day-to-day basis. So we're excited about that because we're going to be able to get that real true feedback from meeting customers. And our vision is that we're not targeting just the vegans and vegetarians, really targeting those those mainstream meat-eating consumers. That's great. And it's really exciting. Can't wait to see what the results of those tests are going to show. You talk about your team. So let me just ask you, the, the company is now a little more than a year old. And you mentioned your co-founder and some scientists. How many folks are employed right now at Aquaculture? Um, full-time, we have four. We're bringing on another scientist at the end of the month. And then we have a, like a culinary advisor who is a part-time off-site culinary advisor who's helping with product development. So I guess that would be around six. We are actively hiring. But, you know, a lot of the... I don't think we have a lot of the job descriptions online right now. We're kind of just... People have been approaching us. And so we've been a little bit deliberate in our hiring strategy. But anybody that's listening to your show, please, I welcome you to send us a LinkedIn or a submission over our website just with some interest, like your resume or cover letter, just wanting to talk. We're interested in finding like-minded people that are you know, really wanting to help support the cause and bring really exciting products to market. Well, that is exciting as you continue to grow the team. So if you have about half a dozen or so positions now, what about your scale? So how much of these fish products can you produce? And I know that um, in at least one of the articles that I read about what you're doing, it said that you're planning to launch six different SKUs in a thousand different locations. So are we close to that happening? You know, we've pivoted away from that a little bit because our original strategy was focused on getting our products into retail right away. We're focusing more on food service now. And so we have distributor partners that could flip the switch. As soon as we're at scale, flip the switch and we're in those those thousand points of distribution tomorrow. However, right now, as I mentioned, we have pivoted away from a focus on grocery to a focus on food service. And so we are on track for all that. Yes, we're going to focus on food service because that's where about 70% of U.S. consumers eat their eat their seafood. It's amazing to see just like what a disparity there is. There's just not that many people who buy fresh seafood in supermarkets. It's really a lot in, in food service and restaurants. So let me, let me ask you, Anne, do you have to file for generally recognized a safe status with FDA? Or is that not something that you think you're going to have to do because you're already using common ingredients? So we are using ingredients that are generally recognized as safe. All of our microorganisms are grass. However, it's really important to us to just make sure we have all of our bases covered. So we're working with a grass attorney right now in order to make sure that, you know, that we have that internal dossier and we're probably going to end up filing with the FDA. Yes. And would you start selling before filing with the FDA? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it's prudent to do that just in case the FDA has any questions. Uh, At the same time, I don't anticipate them having any questions. So I guess it's still a bit in the air. But just I think it's best to just have that kind of confidence, FDA confidence that we're not (laughs) doing anything that could potentially harm anybody. It's 
antithesis of our reason for being in business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, understood. So I do want to ask you then, speaking of uh, the FDA, so the nutritionals that are advertised about your product are are really impressive. So per serving, which I presume is like three ounces or so, you're talking about like around 18 to 20 grams of protein per serving, which seems extremely high. So as you've noted, a lot of the alt seafood products, at least some of them, they're not very high in protein. Some of them, they're made from starches and so on, and they might mimic a seafood texture, but they don't have a lot of nutrition associated with them. This, though, is there, there are some alternative seafoods out there like Good Catch and corn that do have a good amount of protein, but this is a lot of protein, 18 to 20 grams. So is that all coming from the mycelium? Are there other ingredients that are contributing to the protein? Like, How do you get such high protein levels there? Oh, yeah. We're also using protein-creating microorganisms as well. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, that we're using um, culturing together a couple of different microorganisms. That's how we're going ahead and getting our proteins. Oh, I see. Cool. So you're not adding protein isolates like pea protein. It's coming from the fermentation, creating microbes that are actually going to boost the protein content of the mycelium they're co-cultured with. Exactly. Very cool. What an interesting technology. That's awesome. Good for you. Thank you. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty neat. Just the the opportunity there is is vast. And so what we're doing is, again, just uh, through that fermentation process, growing our slabs of protein. And then post-harvesting, we are cutting and forming this protein into these species that we are replicating. So we have the ability to create a shrimp or a calamari and then when it comes to crustaceans. But then we can also do fin fish such as ahi tuna and cod and grouper. And so what we're doing is we're focusing right now on our calamari fries because they are the closest to commercialization. But also in the US, there's just, um, when was the last time you were at a fast and family casual restaurant that they didn't have some sort of like a calamari on the menu? So we feel that by having that kind of product and food service where we can provide a really delicious substitute that is an alternative protein at a price that is comparable to what they're already selling or buying in those restaurants. Like, Why wouldn't taste that is just as good as or better? Why wouldn't somebody want to jump on that option? Our focus is to really provide fantastic tasting products with better nutrition at a price that is at or better than the traditional seafood we're replicating. You know, one of the things that I have long argued, Anne, is that Most uh, nearly all, actually, of the plant-based meat that is out there today is mimicry of chicken or beef or pork, and these things are pretty cheap. But when you start trying to compete against like crab or lobster or calamari, these are actually much more expensive products, and so the the hurdle to get to to price parity is actually much much lower. And so I'm really impressed to see you trying to compete on those because you can help a, a large number of animals and help on sustainability issues and public health and so on, and try to compete on cost at the same time, which has largely not been done by some of these other companies in the alternative protein space. And so in addition to it being a white space, I actually think it might be a, a technologically easier thing to do. I agree with you. You're, you're spot on with that analysis. If you can provide a product that tastes as good as the traditional product that you're you're replicating and at a price that people can not only afford but may even be a little bit more desirable of a price in the long run why wouldn't they make the switch most people want to help the world most people want to eat better but many of them just can't afford 
the price premium that's on alternative proteins or plant-based proteins. And I feel like the alternative protein world in general is on a really good track to drive the price down. But we are at that unique advantage right now where scaling up biomass fermentation is not as expensive as other forms of alternative protein production. And then we are also hitting making seafood where they are a little bit more expensive to begin with. So yeah, yeah, we are definitely at at a competitive advantage, I would say, with getting the price close to what it needs to be, especially in the food service industry, which is where we're targeting. I do want to ask you, Anne, about your partnership with Migros, because you all are a very small, very new startup. And you launched a partnership with this Swiss food giant, this massive, massive food conglomerate called Migros, based in Switzerland. And I'm wondering, how did that happen? And what is it that you're getting out of this partnership? And what are they getting out of it? Yeah, so it's great. Uh, Migros is fantastic. So we started our partnership and we're going to be we're going to be bringing to market some products to market with them. We're going to have a co-branded product under their V-Love brand. And so what's really fantastic about the product, the partnership that we have with them is that we're going to be able to work with them on getting that early product acceptance. We're going to help get the product market fit. They're going to give us access to a lot of their resources for the consumer tasting and do consumer tasting panel and get a lot of consumer intelligence on our product itself. They're also going to help us obtain regulatory approval in Europe, which is a huge deal for us because if we're able to really leverage their experience and their connection in doing this, it's going to help us get into other European countries. So this is a great partnership on many, many levels. Plus, in addition to that, they are going to foot the bill when it comes to any kind of marketing for the product. So how it's going to help us is we're going to have the ability to have a product that is marketed in Switzerland without having to have any cost associated with that marketing. They're going to help get the word out there. They're going to help and help us to really grow our brand. And then we're going to be able to take that story, take those findings, build out our sell story, and then sell to other European markets where the tastes are more attuned. Because what one thing that is really, really interesting is that being from America, you think everybody has the same tastes for a seafood product. But what we're finding and what maybe many other people know and understand, but a shrimp flavor in the US is different from a shrimp flavor in Thailand, which is different from a shrimp flavor in South Korea, which is different than a shrimp flavor in Switzerland. And so what they're going to do is we're going to help find and tune in on what kind of flavors a product that part of the world really likes. And then it's going to help us as we build out our um, sales strategy for that part of the world. It's exciting. You're building something from nothing, and you're really soaring to some pretty high heights here, considering that this was just an idea a year ago. So my hat's off to you on all that you've accomplished so far, and I can't wait to see what more you're going to accomplish. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you, you're a serial entrepreneur. You have had a, a pretty impressive career in a variety of spaces now. If there are people looking at you and they're thinking, ah, I really think it's cool what Ann Palermo is doing, I wonder how I can be more like her. Are there any things that you've either read or watched or heard that you have found useful in your own journey? Any books or anything else that you would recommend to somebody who wants to maybe follow in your footsteps and try to do something good by starting a business to do good in the world? Yeah, well, besides your book, Paul. Uh, yes, obviously, Queen Meat is a, is a prerequisite. But aside from reading Queen Meat, which of course they should do. I really recommend the resources that are available through the Good Food Institute. 
They're fantastic, really well-researched, and they're all free, which is absolutely phenomenal. Most of the times, in order to gain any kind of access to that sort and type of research literature and studies, you have to pay thousands of dollars, but the Good Food Institute gets it to you for free. So I think anybody interested should really start off there and then kind of figure out where they want to do more research. Cool. Well, we will link on the businessforgoodpodcast.com website several of those Good Food Institute resources so that people can go check them out. That, And I will say the Good Food Institute has been extremely helpful for me as well. They really have provided a lot of resources, a lot of expertise that I agree is, is worth uh, a lot. And they provide it all for free. So they really do a great job of achieving that mission to be helpful for folks. Well, there you have it from Ann Palermo. You've heard the early stage story of aquacultured foods. And hopefully we'll be seeing and tasting a lot more of what Ann and aquacultured have to offer in the years to come. So Ann, thank you very much for all that you're doing to help save the oceans. And we'll look forward to continuing to root for your success as the company continues to grow. Oh, thanks, Paul. Really, really appreciate that. It was, it was such a treat speaking with you today. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.